When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Since I was traveling to Alaska, I was not able to discuss several interesting stories out of Arizona that have national implications, some good, some bad. So I want to take this episode today to discuss these in more detail. One involves a national monument designation, the other, the potential delisting of the Apache trout that is found and native to Arizona. These might appear like statewide issues that have no bearing to all of us outside of Arizona, but there are some national impacts that these potential decisions, one a designation, the other a delisting, will have on the country. And we have to follow the trends and see what is happening in other states to examine what could potentially happen in our states, because everything has... An impact and decisions that can happen in one state may occur in another, especially when it's tied to a federal policy. And everything is intertwined. That's how conservation works. It's not just one state affected, it could be multiple states, the whole country. So we have to follow and see what is happening across different states, work together to support good efforts, and work together increasingly to oppose bad efforts. So I want to highlight Arizona because I find these two stories really fascinating. The first relates to one of my favorite topics, a complex topic that doesn't have to be complex, but is complex because of just how convoluted the law associated with national monuments is. I talk at length about the Antiquities Act. Can a president unilaterally declare monuments of gargantuan size of over a million acres? Does that fit into Article 2 or Section 2 of the Antiquities Act of 1906? And Is it a small compatible area? Is it too big of an area? This is a question that Congress has not answered. And I think that's where my assessment of this particular issue comes into play. I have more concerns about that over what it's trying to restrict. I am concerned about some of the activities, the multiple use activities that are going to be restricted potentially with this designation right outside the Grand Canyon, an area that's already largely protected and concealed from further mining activities. There was a moratorium put into place in 2012 under the Obama administration, so the area surrounding Grand Canyon National Park, the BLM or Forest Service land, is already off-limits. Most of it is off-limits to mining projects. So it's interesting they wanted to add a permanent protection, and that is where you see a lot of livestock interests, grazing, farming, and others come out against this. So let's read what this national monument would do should it not be challenged in court. So this is 
the Grand Canyon National Monument. And for reference, if you don't know what Democrat presidents typically do with National Monument designation, so it has to already be, this is not a Democrat or Republican thing, but by law, according to the Antiquities Act, you can only designate a National Monument if it's already in public land control. You can't do this to private land. They want to try to do this to private land by other means. But a National Monument can only come from using existing public land, whether it's BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service, Wilderness, what have you. So that's kind of a crash course. But the president wants to create another Grand Canyon monument. And Grand Canyon National Park came from a monument designation from what I remember reading into the history. So how does this differ from Grand Canyon National Park? And is this being used genuinely for preservation of antiquities, for you know, sacred objects, things that deserve protection? Or is this to stop multiple uses in an area where it's been determined that you could use multiple uses? This is being supported by the Navajo Nation, interestingly enough. And you do see some sportsmen's groups. You see the typical preservationist groups coming around and supporting this. And it's going to, according to the White House, conserve nearly 1 million acres of greater Grand Canyon landscape sacred to tribal nations and indigenous people in advance President Biden's historic climate and conservation agenda. And it will also be, it is a part of the America the Beautiful Initiative, 30 by 30. We talk at length about 30 by 30. Of course, not surprisingly, he is attaching it to that initiative. And there are many concerns when they do this because 30 by 30 is being used to close off multiple uses. And while it doesn't exactly stop hunting and fishing activities, this monument in particular, I've seen so far the proposal, they say they're going to protect it. Anything is up for grabs. Look what they did when they passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. They said hunting and archery classes in schools will not be affected. The Department of Education decided, screw them. We can do this because dangerous weapons, archery equipment, and firearms fall under that category. We don't care. So when you do this, even if they say they're not going to prohibit uses or access, they often do, as we have seen under this administration. So that's a side note. And this would be the Baj Navajo Ita Kukveni Ancestral Footprints of the Grand Canyon National Monument in Arizona. And I apologize for the mispronunciation, but the translation means where indigenous peoples roam in the Havasupai language. And another translation, Kukveni, Ita Kukveni, excuse me, means our ancestral footprints in Hopi language. So it's Hopi and Havasupai tribes. So that is who wants this. Like I said, you see a lot of preservationist environmental groups that are applauding this move. And you see opposition so far building from ranchers, grazers, uh, congressional Republicans. And I'll read for you where sportsmen have kind of taken a middle-of-the-road approach. They're cautiously optimistic that this would adhere to and allow hunting and fishing activities. But let's see what the congressional Republican response officially is here. And I'm going to read for you statements from the Congressional Western Caucus Chairman Dan Newhouse, who's been a previous guest of the show. And they equate this designation of over a million acres to a land grab. And his statement reads like this, the Western Caucus adamantly and strongly condemns this latest action by the Biden administration to please radical environmental groups and make the United States even more dependent on foreign adversaries for our energy needs. Over 1 million acres of land outside 
Grand Canyon National Park, which contained the largest uranium deposit in the U.S., will be locked up to prevent resource development and livestock grazing. As chairman of the Western Caucus, I will continue to fight for the multiple-use mandate and against unelected bureaucrats who are actively shutting down our public lands. And they contend that this, quote, land grab in their mind would prevent livestock grazing and uranium mining. Uranium mining... Uh, sounds very scary, but it's essential for, oddly enough, this president's clean energy agenda. And they don't want to look here at home. They want to look to countries that have worse environmental footprints, no environmental standards, child slave labor for that, instead of looking here at home. So it's a very interesting paradox that they have. They're okay with destroying other places, but do it here responsibly? Can't do that. Nope, 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 nope. And so that's an interesting point of contention, and I think it's worthwhile to mention both. Now, we'll talk about the sportsman contention. I saw this in an email from Safari Club because I'm a member. This is from their First for Hunters email newsletter that came out August 15th. I was on my trip, so I saw it, I glanced it, and I was like, okay, I need to brush up on this, and I need to include this in my assessment of the National Monument designation. They write, at the federal level, the new National Monument around Grand Canyon shouldn't impact hunting. They said Biden designated the monument in question ancestral footprints of the Grand Canyon National Monument, which has nearly a million acres surrounding the Grand Canyon. Importantly for hunters, this designation is not expected to diminish or otherwise interrupt hunting opportunities on the monument. Whether hunting is permitted on a particular national monument largely depends on which federal agency or agencies are tasked with managing it. The lands of the newly designated monument are and will continue to be managed by the Forest Service and BLM, Bureau of Land Management, both of which allow hunting. However, a tribal commission will act as a co-steward of the monument. Although SCI does not expect reduction of hunting opportunities, we will keep an eye on the situation as it develops. I understand they're trying to be cautiously optimistic and they have fought SCI against other shuttering of public land opportunities in other national monument designations where it was obvious that access would be lost. And I've seen other groups, I think Artemis Sportswomen had posted, there will be no effects and impacts on sporting opportunities on federal lands. I would like to believe that. But given what I've written at the Wall Street Journal and my reporting on national monuments, I don't think they're going to honor this much. We'll have to see. I want to be proven wrong. I really do. But I'm so pessimistic about this administration and their lands and conservation management policies. I am not looking at this very positively, and I have to be a pessimist here, just going off of what I've seen. Now, what can be done? So we're not seeing this volleying back and forth, and will there be clarification if a president can designate large swaths of public lands to be national monuments, which are often used to tee up for national parks? And national parks, if you all know, are very restrictive on what type of activities you can do, mostly leisure and national parks have a purpose. I don't dispute that. I'm actually a big national park defender. And I think they have to be unique and distinct from just sectioning off land that may not be as beautiful. It doesn't mean they're not as valuable and important to protect. But I think making everything a national park defeats the purpose of multiple use management. And it defeats what a national park is. A national park is the apex of natural beauty. Unknown things, rather things that should be rare and, and preserved antiquities, real antiquities, not just, you know, a large swath of land that may include things that are not antiquities. That's not what the Antiquities Act is supposed to be used for. It's supposed to protect areas that are very highly sensitive, artifacts that are very rare, and susceptible to cracking and ruin, 
and places that have to be safeguarded from, you know, certain activities. There's a need for that. I absolutely agree. But I see the Antiquities Act being teed up to do this, like I said, in line with 30 by 30 to essentially make everything a national park. That's the goal. And not everything should be a national park. Lands, public lands in particular, have to be open to multiple uses. That doesn't mean everything is going to be developed, is going to become know, pillaged and a waste site by no means. It also means multiple use that recreational opportunities are also celebrated and encouraged as well. And what we've seen with national monuments, unfortunately, is that a lot of these activities that largely contribute to conservation, as we talk about here on the show, they are not honored because the people who oversee these monuments often don't take into account that these activities, wildlife management in particular, should be honored in these type of arrangements, but they should. That is what's been used since the law has gone into effect since 1906. It is due for a refresh. And I think the way to prevent this, because the Supreme Court has said, John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts has said that they may take up a case challenging presidential authority, what is considered, you know, a small compatible area. Can they designate millions of acres under Section 2 of the Law of Antiquities Act and not, you know, have it be called into question? So I think Congress has to do this. I don't know if this is going to happen in this session or in a future administration. I don't see this happening unless we have a Republican administration and Republican House and Senate. This is the only time we could see something like this. But a national monument, I think, should go through more review. It shouldn't just be these preservationist environmentalists petitioning the president directly and kicking out stakeholders who have concerns, very serious, legitimate concerns about loss of access on multiple-use land, BLM, Forest Service land in particular. And I think there has to be reforms by Congress. The president shouldn't just unilaterally designate monuments. He does have the power, but the powers need to be more clarified because he's going beyond what is a small, compatible area, if you read the law in particular, because we want to follow the law. And there was a reform effort in 2017, and one such reform, as I write at Independent Women's Forum, I did this back in April, is limiting the power of presidents to designate monuments in terms of offering more transparency and stakeholder input. It would require presidents to attain congressional approval, approval from affected state legislatures, and proof of certification of compliance with the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, before proceeding. And when you don't allow for transparency and stakeholder input, you have what is deemed an obviously anti-democratic stakeholder relation. When these very powerful, rich, special interest groups of preservationist environmentalists can directly petition to the president and stakeholder input of concern and opposition to a monument is disregarded and is not considered and they rush to designate a monument. That is what often happens, and it is anti-democratic. We always hear from preservationists, oh, you know, we're, we're democratic and we support public lands, but they only support public lands to the benefit of those who agree with them. They don't support multiple use most of the time. They want to move away from multiple use. It's widely open, widely available literature that they have there. They want to move to a public use model, which is not even public use, away from multiple use. And the, the reason why I'm often concerned with these really wide-sweeping designations, not because I'm reflexively opposing President Biden, I disagree with him, yes, but I can even intelligently see 
that the law is not being followed here and so much clarification needs to happen. A modernization and a refresh of the Antiquities Act is long overdue to occur. And anyone who follows the Constitution claims to be for democracy, you would see that when reading the law that the president shouldn't be, you know, designating large tracts of public lands as monuments to tee up for national parks. That's not what they're supposed to do for the most part. You can, for for really sensitive, unique areas, absolutely. But to make multiple-use land sectioned off just to tee up for a national park to keep people off public lands, which sounds counterintuitive, but that's the goal and that's what they do, that runs against the Antiquities Act. And like I said, are they protecting antiquities throughout this designation? Are there really antiquities on one million acres? I don't think so. And so could a smaller monument be doable? Perhaps. But I want to wait to see what unfurls from this, because like I said, I have a lot of doubts that this will be honored in terms of allowing for sportsmen and women access. We see with other decisions, that's not the case. They promise. And then when final implementation happens, you see a loss of access. That's just how this game goes. This is what happens when you work in politics long enough. You become cynical about the process. But that's the reality that we're faced. So if you want to learn more about this designation, what they intend to do, kind of the cautious optimism some sportsmen's groups have about it, but they still want to hold the administration accountable. You want to learn more about the Antiquities Act. You want a crash course. I have become tapped in this issue, and I will help you learn about the Antiquities Act. I have links to my... Unicorn fact check on the Antiquities Act, some recent designations, what reform should be happening in terms of refreshing the law. And I think you'll find it very helpful. So let me know what you think about this. And again, I don't want to just reflexively oppose this administration, but I am concerned that this designation will prevent multiple uses, which is under the public lands doctrine, FLIPMA, that we've had since 1972 established. I don't want to see that eroded. And that's what worries me here because this is part of 30 by 30. A more positive development from Arizona is that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a proposal to delist the Apache trout. And this came on August 14th when they announced that the Apache trout is going to be removed from the federal list of endangered and threatened species. And I'm reading this and I learned this actually from the Western Native Trout Group, a contact of mine. Uh, the Western Native Trout Initiative. There we go. I don't think they're a rival to Trout Unlimited, but they're a supplemental group. I think that's what I can surmise about the organization. And I want to read for you the official press release from the Fish and Wildlife Service. And delisting should be celebrated. I love whenever a imperiled species gets off the endangered species list. So I wanted to inc- conclude with something positive here with the trout delisting. And let's see the reasons for why they want to delist the Apache trout. Here we go. Okay, so Fish and Wildlife Service, August 10th. They have announced the recovery of Arizona's ESA-protected state fish, prompting delisting proposals. So after 50 years of collaborative conservation, this is why the decision has been handed down. And so they propose to remove the native Apache trout from the list of endangered and threatened species, Collaboration and partner-driven habitat conservation, non-native trout removal, and reintroduction efforts have helped save the Apache trout from the brink of extinction. If delisted, it would be the first game fish to be removed from the list of threatened and endangered species. That's wonderful. Now, from Amy Luders, who is the Fish and Wildlife Service Regional Director for Arizona, she is quoted as saying in the press release, The Apache trout recovery is a significant conservation milestone and a remarkable story to celebrate, especially during the 50th anniversary of the ESA, Endangered Species Act. 
The ESA makes a difference by bringing people together to find solutions to conserve and recover imperiled species like the Apache trout. And some context and background behind Arizona state fish, the Apache trout, is native exclusively to the streams in and around the White Mountains in the eastern part of the state. It was originally considered the same species as the Gila trout, which was listed under ESA Preservation Act in 1967. Apache trout was first described as a unique species separate from the Gila trout in 1972. A year later, it gained protection under the ESA of 1973 and was subsequently downlisted to threaten in 1975. They claim that the major threat to Apache trout populations has been the introduction of non-native trout. They write that the gene pool was threatened by hybridization with non-native rainbow and cutthroat trout. Additionally, non-native brook and brown trout pose threats through competition and predation. Much of the collaborative conservation work has involved removing these introduced trout from the Apache trout habitat and constructing barriers to block further non-native invasions. If you would like to learn more, you want to see the different kind of recovery projects that facilitated the delisting. I will include it in the show notes. And Western Trout, Western Native Trout Initiative has said that it's a huge win for fish and wildlife conservation. And they say that the Apache trout is Arizona state fish and is native exclusively to the streams. And the current status is due to the Collaborative Conservation and Threat Reduction actions implemented by many entities, including tribes, federal and state agencies, conservation groups, private citizens, the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Fisheries. So that is a good note I wanted to end. Arizona-centric today, of course, but delisting, always worth celebrating, and I need to research a bit more, but Arizona friends tell me this is the right decision. And as I read in the press release, it's the first of its kind of listing of a fish of this magnitude. So really cool. I've heard so much about Gila trout and Apache trout from Representative Kwang Win, uh, who is a past guest of the show. He's an avid fly angler. He is a member of the Arizona legislature. And so I've heard from him and many of my other Arizona friends that it's such a beautiful trout and you want to see these keystone species thrive and survive. And so it is really critical that you do protect native trout. And I need to educate myself a little bit more on that uh, because we largely have non-native trout here in Virginia. I haven't really heard apart from some little chatter. Sometimes it does entangle with the native brook trout. Uh, but we haven't had problems like Arizona or those states out west so much with it. Um, but I don't think this puts to a threat trout reintroduction efforts or trout stocking programs. But I know there's a contention over whether stock trout is good. In some waters, like in Arizona, it may not be wise to mix Apache trout with non-native trout. And so I think state wildlife agencies can delicately balance this, all the while maintaining their trout stocking programs in maybe separate streams, not mix it with, obviously, native trout that are sensitive to non-native trout. So I will do some more research because I've always been fascinated by this, and I've heard the rumblings of this debate. Like, I have friends who don't like stock trout programs. I generally support them when they're done well. And so I think this is a conversation we'll continue to have. We'll see probably a debate following this delisting of whether or not states are going to abandon their trout stocking programs or maybe make them more selective and mindful of native trout, especially if there's a problem like this. So this will be, I think, the first of many podcasts that we touch upon native versus non-native trout and debate over trout stocking programs. But I really 
like that we see a rare positive use of the ESA where a species that's made full recovery has been delisted and they'll proceed with it pending no legal challenge. But knowing preservationist groups, they may say that this is, you know, not far reaching or this is too capricious. This shouldn't be done. It wasn't executed properly. You need to keep them protected because these environmentalists, y'all, they fundraise the heck out of species that are perceived to be imperiled, even if they've made and passed the threshold of recovery. That's what these people do. They exploit the plight of wildlife. That's their modus operandi. That's how they make money and stay in business by suing. So we'll see if there are any legal challenges to the delisting of the Apache trout, but this is a really good sign. I wanted to make sure we highlighted that on the show today. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.